All right. Good morning, church. Hi, my name is John Ramira, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at CBC, and once in a while I get to be up here uh, with you guys. We do have a new sermon series uh, this summer, and it's called Encountering Jesus. And so this last year we spent seven months uh, in a sermon series called Reordered, where we primarily looked at the true teaching uh, of Jesus. So we looked at three chapters of the Sermon of the Mount and how Jesus kind of looks at things upside down. Uh, but this summer, our new sermon series, Encountering Jesus, is looking at more, right, the true living of Jesus, okay, kind of how he engaged uh, with people, uh, the way he talked to them, his miracles, the way he challenged and loved people. So that's what we're going to be doing this summer. And as Jesus connected uh, with people in the Gospels, okay, his name is, is powerful, right? But Jesus referred to himself by one name, okay, more than any other name in the Gospels. And do you guys know what that is? All right, that's right. The Son of Man, right? It's a messianic title that's found in the book of Daniel, and it carries a lot of weight uh, to the Jewish people. And Jesus used it frequently because he wanted to be really clear, right? He knew who he was, and he wanted others to know who he was, that he was their Messiah, right, their savior and their king. So clarity, he, he also made it clear uh, multiple times why the son of man came. And so if you were to complete the sentence, right, the son of man came. All right, yeah, so you know a little bit. There's four passages where Jesus actually says the son of man came to do this, right? The first one, Luke 19, verse 10, the son of man came to seek and to save the law. So we can pattern our lives after these reasons, right? Do we, our lives revolve around the lost being found? Okay? We, uh, no matter what we do, do we have a mission to make fully devoted followers of Christ who love God and love others? So the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and, and do we uh, pattern our lives around that? Uh, the second one, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So are we giving our lives the service of others? Okay, how are we serving the people around us? Okay, a good question for us uh, to ask. Uh, the third one is maybe the most fascinating one uh, for me. Uh, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And I'm like, yes, finally something that we can really get behind and be excited about, right? Uh, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. But let me finish that, that verse uh, for you. It says in Matthew eleven nineteen, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Right? Jesus, you're doing this a little bit too much. Right? Uh, they're accusing him of being a, a drunkard, a glutton, and he's hanging out with all the wrong people. So I've been reading uh, a couple books, uh, recommend them, uh, Robert J. Harris, Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel, right? Um, a Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. Uh, and in this one, uh, he says that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal, <laughs> right? He's either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming uh, from a meal, and so let me finish that verse again, Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. Okay, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, 
a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then he finishes and says, yet wisdom okay, is justified by her deeds. Right? Or in other words, wisdom is shown to be right by its results. And what were the results of Jesus eating and drinking all the time? Right? And so I believe that Jesus shows us this pattern that there is wisdom okay, and power uh, in encountering people in their home and at their table and at our tables. Okay, so that's what we're going to start off uh, our Encountering Jesus series with today. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 9 through 13. Right? There's wisdom and power right, in encountering people in their home at the table. So Matthew 9, 9 to 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, hey, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So an encounter with Jesus at the table, and who does he meet? Okay, this guy, actually his real name is Levi, son of Alphaeus. Okay, later he becomes uh, Matthew or Matisyahu. But the name Levi means united, uh, pledged together, joined together. But here we find him in, his, in this occupation yeah, that's the opposite of uniting his people together. Because we all know, right, tax collectors are one of the most hated people in uh, Jesus' time. They were considered traitors uh, because they worked for the Roman government. They actually bought the right from Rome to collect taxes from their own people. And they were considered thieves because they would collect more money than they should. And the more money they collected, then the more money they could keep. So in their line of work, right, they were very wealthy, and there were uh, chief tax collectors like Zacchaeus, and he was in charge of lower tax, ranking tax collectors like Matthew, who would sit in the booth uh, all day long. Right? So what kind of man do you have to be uh, to get into a profession like tax collecting right? and sit in that booth every day being hated by your people? So maybe you don't care what people think, cold heart, you love money and all the benefits that it gives you um, and all the material things, maybe low morals, you can really lie and cheat people. And so tax collectors, right, they were social outcasts. Uh, they were not allowed in the synagogue to worship like the rest of the people. And they couldn't sacrifice there like the other Jews. They, they could only hang out with fellow tax collectors and all those vile people, sinners and prostitutes. And that was who they hung out with. And so why would Jesus then walk up uh, a holy rabbi asked a tax collector to follow him. Why would he develop this guy to be a teacher in their community when no one would submit to him, knowing, hey, isn't that the guy who was collecting money from us right, a couple months ago? So much to the surprise of the other disciples, he goes up to Matthew, intentionally seeks him out, and he says to him, follow me. And I think the conversation would have gone, hey, where are we going? And like Zacchaeus, right? Because we're going to your house today. And so in this invitation, Matthew immediately responds. He leaves everything behind. 
He opens up his house and he invites all his friends and he has a great banquet, shows hospitality. And uh, this theologian, uh, S. Scott Barchi, he, he kind of paints this clearer picture for us. Hey, he says that it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century. Right? Meal times were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Okay? Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, okay, intimacy, and unity. Uh, another professor, uh, professor of Near Eastern Studies at Cambridge says this. He said that wealthier people were the only people regularly eating good meat, old wine, and excellent bread, and varied vegetables and fruit and nuts. Because most people ate bread or porridges made of barley, uh, various cereals and legumes, and more rarely wheat. They could not afford noble meat, except for festivities and even then a small quantity. So, right, the scene here, a large crowd of people, tax collectors, guests who were wealthy, reclining, long conversations, friendship, intimacy, unity, and Jesus and his disciples were probably eating some of the best food that they've had in a while, right? and large lavish feasts, and many people could see and hear what they were doing. And so the Pharisees, they hear of it, and what do they do? They complain. Okay, how can this rabbi eat with these people, these sinners? And I think the underlying statement behind that is, right, you shouldn't be eating with them, you should be eating with us. Right? What does Jesus respond to this that Matthew and all his guests get to hear? He says this, verse 12. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Dr. Jesus says, hey, where else would I be? Who else would I be hanging out with when I am the one who can provide healing and I need to be in close proximity with those who are sick? And so the underlying answer to their statement of, hey, you shouldn't be hanging out with them, you should be hanging out with us, was, hey, I'm not hanging out with you because you don't seem to think that you are sick and need a doctor, right? And so he says, I need you to learn something that I desire, mercy and not sacrifice. Okay, what is mercy, right? Compassion, uh, kindness, and forgiveness to those who are miserable or afflicted or in need. Um, and what is sacrifice? that he's referring to. Uh, I think that's duty or rituals and traditions that make us look good on the outside but are devoid of compassion and love and mercy. Because Matthew and his friends are lost and Jesus and his, in his great mercy, he seeks them out while the religious people you know, don't wanna get their reputations dirty or their hands dirty by sharing a table okay, with these people. And Jesus says, I desire kindness and compassion more than I desire what makes you look good or what makes you look righteous. Okay, because he says, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And I think of that statement, like, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Because in reality, none are righteous. Right? You either knew you were a really big sinner or you had this false sense of being good enough. Right? This is what I call being self-righteous. Okay, the Pharisees were a prime example of this, that Jesus rebuked 
And there's actually this parable in Luke chapter 18 that Jesus tells that gives us a clue of the, pass, of the possible heart okay, that Matthew has. Okay, so in Luke 18, I'm going to read you verse 10 to 14. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself and said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay, I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified. You guys know what justified means? Okay, justified means declared righteous right, before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be okay, exalted. So what Jesus really hates and rebukes is self-righteousness, an attitude of pride, self-sufficiency, and saying, hey, I'm, I'm good enough, and I don't really need to rely on God at all. Uh, I've been studying the, the book of Ephesians uh, with our youth, and we talk about the armor of God. And he talks about this one piece called the breastplate of righteousness that protects our heart. And I believe that breastplate of righteousness uh, is this attitude of humility and reliance on God that's really exemplified by that tax collector who was praying in the temple. Right? He went home, declared righteous, okay, because his attitude was like that song. Hey, Lord, I need you. Right? Oh, I need you. Right? Every hour, I need you. You're my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. And I think that maybe that is the heart of Matthew. And what everybody needs to realize is our great need for God, right? Every moment of our lives. And the warning that Jesus gives us, okay, is that self-righteousness will keep you from his table and will keep others from your table. So we must be careful of this. Self-righteousness will keep you from his table and will keep others from your table. So this is how Jesus meets us, right? At his table. And over and over in scripture, he tells us this over and over again. Revelation 3, 19 to 20. It says, those whom I love, I reprove and, I, and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Humble yourself and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, right? And hang out with him. <laughs> now he says, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Okay, there's that theme again over and over. This is the love and heart of Christ, to sit with the humble of heart, okay, and recline with him and eat with him. And even in our salvation, right, he didn't just snap his fingers and provide salvation for us, but the incarnation means he became flesh uh, and he shows his heart uh, by becoming flesh to save us, to serve us, and to eat and drink with us. And scripture is full of references to God using the table to draw near to us and for us to draw near to him. And one of my favorite ones in Exodus 24, 9 through 11, right? This is after uh, God gives the people the Ten Commandments uh, in Exodus 24, 9 through 11. Uh, it says, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. 
And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So after God gives them the Ten Commandments, he says, hey, guys, let's come on up and let's eat and let's dine together. Um, And so in Jewish history, over and over, the Lord commands the people to commemorate their salvation at the table, gathering around the table with many different feasts, uh, worshiping together and remembering what God has done, right? Always at the feast, always at the table. In Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. One of the things he does is makes a table for us, right? In the presence of his enemies. And then when Jesus finally shows up on the scene on earth, okay, he's known for eating and drinking. And there's uh, tons of descriptions of him uh, in these places, right? He goes to a wedding, and the wedding could have ended, but Jesus extends the party by making lots and lots of good, really, really good wine, right? He invites people to listen to his sermon, and he doesn't just send them away hungry, Okay, he multiplies loaves and fishes, and he feeds them, not just spiritually, but physically. Okay, he invites himself to different people's homes, and he uses that time to teach and to confront people like Martha and Mary, right, that story. And he has deep conversations with them okay, at the dinner table. Um, before he goes to the cross, he has a Passover meal with his disciples where he teaches them first right, how to wash each other's feet. That was the start of their dinner. Okay, he laid aside his garments and he washed their feet, showing them how to serve each other. And he, at the Last Supper, shows them a way to remember his sacrifice through the broken bread and the cup. And at that Last Supper, he declares, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you okay, in my Father's kingdom. And so Jesus declares a future where we are sitting together with him eating and drinking at his table. And one of the ways heaven is described uh, in Scripture, Revelation 19, is what? Right? A marriage supper of the Lamb. Every time you go to a wedding, you should always remember you're getting a glimpse of what heaven uh, is like. And I hope that some of us will be able to sit together when Jesus serves that wine right, for the first time since he was here on earth. And that would be an amazing uh, thing for us to experience together. Right? All these examples of Scripture right, declare over and over to us, right, the heart of God to sit with us and to say and declare that we have a place, right, at his table through Jesus Christ. Okay, we have a place at his table through Christ. According to Hebrews 4, because we have a great high priest, okay, who died on the cross for us, we can draw near with great confidence to his kingdom, and I believe to his kingdom table. All right, so every time we sit for a meal, okay, I pray that we don't just give thanks for our food, right? But you actually give thanks because as followers of Christ, we have a future place at his table. Every time we eat a meal, we should remember we have a future place at Christ's banqueting table. And that's an amazing gift that he has for us. And we should remember that at every meal and rejoice. There's this uh, quote by uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he says this, okay, God will not tolerate the unfestive, joyless manner in which we eat our bread with sighs of groaning, with pompous, self-important busyness, or even with shame. Through the daily meal, God is calling us to rejoice, to celebrate in the midst of our working day. Because we have a place at his table, so there's a reason for joy at every meal. 
right? Every time you sit there, remember your place at his kingdom table. Uh, so lastly, right, this is how Jesus meets us. So how do we help others meet Jesus? And of course, it's at the table, right? We have a place at his table, and so we make a place for others at our table, right? If we have a place at his table, okay, we make a place for others at our table because Jesus shows us there's wisdom, there is power in using the table to seek the lost uh, and to serve those around us. And so the question, are we using our tables like Jesus to take time to love others, uh, to bring others to the kingdom of God? And maybe there's three things that we can look at that maybe we can reorder around the table. And I think there are these three things, right? Uh, our family, uh, evangelism around the table, and community groups uh, around the table. I want to make this very practical for us this morning. Um, Robert Karras, the one who wrote uh, the book of Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel, okay, uh, he says this. He contrasts our idea of eating with first uh, century, saying, okay, we today... We eat on the run and graze infrequently sitting together as a family. But Jesus, uh, Luke, and their contemporaries know of and participated in symposium meals at which they reclined on couches that were very long and festive. They were uh, featuring food and drink and lengthy conversation. There's no gulping or galloping at those meals. All right, so with our families, Right? Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says the home is the primary place of discipleship uh, for us. And I believe that the table is one of the most powerful and strongest tools that you have in your family to disciple right, and train up your kids. Right? So don't abandon it. Right? However, right, we're abandoning the table because maybe our lack of intentionality uh, or we're either too busy to get our family to sit together for meals. There's actually this organization uh, called FMI. It's actually based in Arlington. And they're partnering with uh, American Heart Association and the National Alliance of Mental Illness. And they uh, started a family meals movement, okay, a family meals movement. And if you go to their website, fmi.org, uh, this is what they says on their website. It says, uh, family meals are the foundation for a healthy nation. That's, that's, a, that's a bold statement, right? Family meals are the foundation for a healthy nation. Uh, they said, the stay-at-home realities of the global pandemic created increased opportunities for family meals resulting in newfound awareness and appreciation for the benefits of eating together. And they said, family meals improve family functioning. And studies have demonstrated a positive relationship between family meal frequency and measures of family functioning. And family functioning is family connectedness, communication, expressiveness, and problem solving. And they've seen children getting better grades, uh, better motivated at school, fewer depression symptoms, and better ability to get along uh, with others. And so are we getting our families to sit together frequently for unrushed meals? That's one of the most powerful tools that you have to disciple uh, your kids. And as a first step of family ministry, remember, I've been asking each of our families at CBC to create a family vision and value statement that you make, and you print it out physically, you put it on your fridge, and you would take moments in your time, uh, in your family, in your home, maybe at the dinner table, to listen, connect, and instruct your children with those family values and vision. Okay, so are we getting our families to sit together frequently 
for unrushed meals? And do we need to reorder our family priorities around the table? Right? We need to ask that question. Before Sarah and I had kids, I know we, uh, I remember we interviewed or met with these two couples. We thought their kids were really living out their family values and were following after Christ. And we said, hey, what do you guys do? And we found two things that they had in common. Uh, they had um, family vacations together. And they said, I always, we always prioritize family mealtimes together. Right? So are we needing to reorder our family priorities around the table? Right, the second one, evangelism. Right, Jesus pursued people for the kingdom okay, using the table. Right? And this is what he was doing at Matthew's house. This is what he was doing at Zacchaeus' house. And whenever he would go to the Pharisees' house. So are we inviting our neighbors, our friends who need Christ to our table, even before we're inviting them to our church services? Right? Invite them home, to your home first, to your table first, before even inviting them here. Right? This could be as simple as going out to, to Sweet Frogs with your swim team, right, after your swim meet. Or it can mean being more intentional and in actually putting these things in our schedule, actually putting it in your budget to have meals with people. And I know I need to be a lot better at that as well. Okay, so do we need to reorder our evangelism around the table? Because that's what Jesus Christ was doing as, as an example for us, right? The third thing, community groups. Okay, Acts 2.42 says the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, which is eating together, and prayer, right? And so that's up there with teaching, fellowship, and prayer. And so what, what do we do every Sunday morning? We gather for teaching, fellowship, and then in prayer, right? But then there's that missing component, right? So a good question to ask, who are we eating with after the service today? Who are we eating with? Okay, do our community groups have a meal component to them? Or is this just too much effort or we don't have time for it, right? And I think these are important questions to ask as we're trying to build a sense of community right after the pandemic. So do we need to reorder uh, our community groups also around the table? So those three things, family, uh, evangelism, community groups, how do we reorder those things possibly around the table? Um, so back to Matthew's story, okay? And who Jesus met at the table was a guy named Levi. Okay? But he was transformed into Matthew. Right? Do you guys know what the name Matthew means? Okay, anyone named Matthew here? Your name means gift of God. Right? So you have Matthew okay, who leaves tax collecting behind okay, and he seeks to follow after Jesus. He left uh, a life of riches, but he got... Uh, riches above and beyond what he can ask or imagine in Christ. Right? The amazing thing is that Matthew writes a gospel that's actually geared and devoted towards a Jewish audience, right? The very people who despised him, who didn't share a table with him. And he did the most loving thing he could for them by arguing in his gospel that Jesus is their Jewish Messiah, the Son of Man. And that was his argument in the book of Matthew to the people who hated him the most. And so you have a, a guy who was a divisive thief and traitor to his people now becoming a unifying force and actually a gift okay, to the people of Israel. Matthew is transformed, and it starts when Jesus invites himself okay, to have a meal at his house. Um, so maybe these are some of the steps that we need to take in our family, uh, in evangelism, and 
in our community groups. So I really believe, right? The Son of Man came to seek the lost. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. But it's also significant that the Son of Man came eating and drinking as an example uh, for us. Because he shows there's wisdom, there is power in using the table to seek and to serve the lost around us. So how are we doing with using our table? And do we need to reorder family evangelism and community groups around the table as well? And I hope that okay, you'll remember this sermon every time you eat your meal, right? That we have a place at his kingdom, at his table. Okay, so we make a place for others okay, at our table. Uh, and I hope that you remember that. And when you gather together, to make a place for others at your table at every meal. All right? So let's pray. Uh, let's pray together. Um, Father, we thank you. Uh, and we love you. And we thank you when, you when you came to this earth, you showed us how to live a life and how to reach out to others. Thank you, Father, that you um, are always making a place for us at your table. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to humble ourselves, not to have an attitude of self-righteousness or busyness, but to help us to make room for others at our table at all times. Um, and we look forward uh, to seeing you face-to-face, -to, -face, to sitting at your table uh, one day uh, and rejoicing with you. Help us rejoice every time we sit and eat of what you have done for us and help us to make a place for others at our, at our table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.